Good morning and welcome to Taproots. My name is Tracy and I'll be reading God's word for us today. Um, when I finish reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And as a church, we will prayerfully respond, speak, Lord, your servants here. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Je Jesus had finished these sayings... He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and we'll pray. Father, um, I'm grateful that you give us not just the words um, that are easy to hear, but the ones that are difficult as well, and the ones that are complicated and leave us um, sometimes squirming, um, because in that tense place, um, you are at work. So I pray for all of us today that we would be able to receive your Spirit's work in each of our hearts and receive both your comfort and conviction. Please empower well by your spirit as well. Amen. Um, well, good morning, Taproot. My name is Will Bossert. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Taproot Church, and I'm just so thankful to get to worship our King Jesus together with you all. Um, so uh, if you're a guest here, I want to say welcome, and uh, I just want to catch everyone up. We're kind of in the middle of a little mini series in Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 12, where we're discussing we're kind of taking a pause and we're slowing down and we're getting into kind of the weeds as far as marriage and then we're talking about divorce and talking about singleness, talking about sex and just trying to address these topics that Jesus seems to be fleshing out as he's answering these hard questions of the Pharisees. And I drew the lucky lot to talk about divorce this morning. So, um, so I'm excited to, uh, honestly, I... I I think all of God's word is good, and I'm, uh, I wouldn't say I'm excited to preach this, but I would say that I'm, I'm looking forward to us as a family getting to preach through this together and work through this together. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in introduction, sort of just getting us all on the same page, okay? Um, I, uh, I, I have a bit of a unique situation where I have never actually been super duper, my personal self, close to divorce, but my mom and dad were never married. So I'm an illegitimate son, so that's great. Uh, but that's kind of, that carries with it its own version of baggage, its own struggles, its own strifes, its own abandonment issues, its own dad issues, its own mom issues. It's great, it's awesome. It's, just pray for me all the time, please. But, uh, but like, so there's that. But that said, I have been around divorce because we've all in some capacity been around this thing that is divorce, I'm sure. Whether it's family, friends, I mean, everyone's been to school with somebody who their parents have probably been going through or have gone through divorce. 
And in some ways, by proxy, that has affected us in different ways. And so one of the things I just, I want to address up front is, um, is that we need to understand that we all kind of come into this topic carrying our own little pocket full of our own perspective. And here's what that can kind of look like. And I, I like to think of it like this, that um, it's like an elephant. It's an elephant in the room. Let's just call it out, right? And, and think of it like this elephant is partitioned off like it's got like big walls coming off of its shoulders and it's, it's back end diagonally. And imagine if someone's standing at the front of that elephant and is describing exactly what they see out loud to a bunch of people that have never seen an elephant before. They'd be describing things like ears and trunks and eyes and tusks and things. But imagine someone from the side of that elephant looking at this thing and going, that's not at all what this thing is. This thing is a big, this is a big gray side and nice little belly. It's great. It legs and stuff. It's, what are you talking about? And then the person from the back, man, that poor person, right? <laughs> but they're giving their perspective of this thing as well. And it's going to look different. Here's the thing. They're all describing the same thing, but they've all gained from their experience a different perspective of the same thing, right? And we all do that when we come into the idea of divorce. Some of us have been through divorce ourselves. Some of us our children who have experienced parents being divorced. Some of us are friends and have seen the pain of divorce in one another's relationships. Some of us have been friends counseling someone else going through a difficult time in their marriage that maybe ended in divorce. And in all of that, we have to be able to, to hold those different perspectives with grace and humility. Amen? And know that the person who has been far from divorce and watched other people and have been married for 50 years, sometimes your perspective can feel more like shame for those that are going through divorce right now because it is hard, right? And those of you that are children of divorce are going to come at this thing with, with just, it's going to rehash a lot of pain and anxiety potentially. And so up front, I also want to just have a moment where we, you know, we kind of just have trigger warning here. I'm going to be discussing a few things that are difficult. Um, one of the things I know that even our preschoolers are in here this morning, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about sex or sexual immorality. Um, I will not get graphic or explicit, I promise you, but that is something we have to discuss as we go into this topic of divorce at least a little bit. Um, the other thing, um, as far as like a trigger warning might go, is we're, I want to broach the topic of abuse emotional, physical abuse. I think it's important to not just leave that one hanging out there, but that we kind of, we deal with it head on and understand the, the complexities of it, okay? So, um, so we will be talking about those things. My plan is to not, um, to not say anything overly divisive, I imagine, or painful or explicit, but that we, we do our best as a community of believers as we as we come at this thing with all of our different perspectives and all of our different experiences, we come to it with humility and grace, and we desire to seek what Jesus has to say on this thing. Um, and then we understand everyone's got different experiences and, and, and background that goes into this, okay? That said, this is all hard. This is all really hard, right? Um, as your pastor, I've been laboring quite a bit to try to come at this thing. Because I think it's important because we all, like from I said from the beginning, we've all felt it in some capacity. Um, but here's the thing. We can do hard things, Christians. Amen? Um, on Friday, I took my family to Tubbs Berry Farm, and me and my family of five of us got through that maze and went through the entrance and came out the proper exit. So we can do hard things. Uh, so that's the, so I want to get to that. But, but what I want us to do as well is not only just hold, being able to hold perspectives, that we would also be uh, just a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can also hold tension. We can hold tension. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I'm, probably, I'm probably going to say that too much in this sermon, and I'm okay with it, okay? But we need to hold tension, and here's, here's what we mean, is that, like, like, it's this thing that I think of when Paul is describing qualifications for deacons particularly, he says they need to be able to hold the mystery of the faith. And the, the realities of that, I think, are intense and immense, because uh, the reality is, is that there are seemingly things 
in Scripture that we have to just be able to hold, not fully understanding every single little thing about it to the level that God understands the thing, because we can't. And we sometimes have to hold the tension of seemingly contradictory things, seemingly contradictory understandings. And I think that marriage and its design and the, the, the fact that divorce exists is one of those tensions that we as Christians have to be able to hold. And not only in our understanding of the doctrine of it do we need to be able to hold the tension of these things, but as also as people are working through the difficulties of relationship with one another in covenantal marriage— There has to be tension held as we process through that with fellow believers who are going through that very thing. You with me? And here's the thing. Jesus always calls us into being able to be people who hold tension. He did not promise us a life of ease, affordability, and comfort. That's what Western consumerism promises you every Sunday afternoon when you're watching football and those commercials come up. Every one of those commercials says you can have all the comfort, ease, simplicity you want in the world. You just have to have a credit check. Right? That's not what our God ever promises us. Instead, he calls us into this this idea of holding tension. He says so when he says, for my disciples, those who follow me, they have to deny themselves Pick up their cross and follow me. That's Jesus inviting us into a difficult life of suffering and loss and struggle and tension. So we do well to hold tension. Matter of fact, really, really cool things hold lots of tension. I, always, I just think of cars. Cars, like, they're an anomaly to me. I am not mechanical in any shape or form or fashion. Um, but the fact that this weird machine can go 200 thousand plus miles and somehow holds together even though it has miniature explosions happening inside of it and RPMs are happening and like pistons are firing and things are happening and ultimately this giant machine moves forward all the time, that thing is always in tension. Yet it's held together through great systems and great mechanical work and we look at it like that's a cool thing, right? I think as Christians, we need to understand that we are called more into a life of tension than we are called to a life of ease and comfort. You with me? So, and this is no different. As we enter into this concept of divorce, let's be willing to hold tension here. Okay? In order to do that, God gives us two things. He gives us his word. He gives us his word that we can seek wisdom. That's that's our word this morning, wisdom, that we would do so with wisdom. His whole word points us to that. And guess what his word calls us to do? To ask for wisdom. I think of James chapter one, when James literally tells the Christians, ask the Lord for wisdom and he'll give it to you. And we need to be people that do so, that we're seeking wisdom, we're looking to scripture to understand that it, it requires wisdom to do this thing called live life and follow Jesus that we have to be followers who do so by wisdom. And how we truly unlock that wisdom is not just on our own accord, but that we are gifted with his spirit. So in order to hold this tension, we have to seek wisdom and we have to do so by the empowerment of his spirit in us. Okay? So in anything we sort of navigate in here today, I just pray for wisdom and pray for his spirit to be present. The, one other thing I want a little caveat here. Um, I have a quote, and I want to just like just look at the the two great errors that we need to avoid here as we tackle this text. Okay, um, I'm going to be quoting Frederick Dale Bruner a lot in this sermon. I think he is he is just the voice on the book of Matthew. I I really appreciate the way he teaches Matthew, the way he looks at Matthew, the way he sees Matthew in light of all of scripture. And so um, we're actually going to be quoting Frederick Del Bruner a little bit, but he says this. He says, two great errors to avoid. One, teaching the present text so rigorously that the impression is left of no context of gospel whatsoever. That is, no forgiveness of sin and of sinners. And two, diluting the present text's high imperatives so quickly with the context forgiveness and that repentance, faithful marriage, holy living, and honest discipleship are sabotaged. Again, do you see in that quote this idea that we've got to hold tension here? 
And so often our personal experiences will make us probably in one way or the other. And what we need to do is we need to be able to see these things in a healthy balance, okay? I think that's helpful. Um, my goal today is to hold this tension with what Scripture says about marriage, and particularly what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 19 about marriage and divorce. Ultimately, the goal here is that all of us would seek to, to, to glorify God and his beautiful plan and design of marriage, but then also understand that in Scripture we do see this idea of divorce, that there is a concede because of the hard hardness of man, divorce does exist. So those are my goals today, that we kind of navigate that reality on both sides, all right? Um, here are some things that I just want to make really, really clear up front that is not heard today. <laughs> do not hear this. I'm declaring it up front. Do not hear this, okay? Please do not hear that your personal situation is outside the loving grace of our King Jesus, okay? Do not hear that. His love, his healing power is more than any of us can ever imagine. It's beyond the understanding of man, and he can heal you in any and all situation you find yourself in, okay? But two, do not hear that you now from a sermon that I'm preaching this morning that you should feel confident to seek or pursue divorce, and this is all you need is, the, oh, I heard the sermon from Will, and I think I'm good to get divorced now. Divorce is something that should be done through long-suffering in community with professional and gospel-centered Christ followers around you over a period of time wrestling through the realities of this because ultimately today what I'm going to be pointing to is that Jesus makes clear that the plan A is marriage and marriage that does not separate, but that because of a hard hardness of man, there is a conceit that is divorce that exists, Okay. So please don't hear the sermon and be like, cool, Will made me feel good about getting divorced. You misheard me. All right, thank you. That said, let's, uh, let's dig into the scripture and let's look into this. My first point this morning is the creation of marriage. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. What I want to do actually is encourage you, if you haven't had a chance, to listen to the sermon from last week. This is what Mike preached on. Mike preached on Jesus' teaching on marriage. And, uh, and so in that, a lot of this is covered, so I'm not going to go and rehash all of that because that would take us an extra hour here this morning, but, uh, but there is that, and I do, we do need to hit on it a little bit, and so let's dig into this, see what happens. I'm going to start reading, picking up in verse 3 of this passage. So it says, And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce, to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We'll stop there for now. So when Jesus is, is confronted with this, these probing entrapment questions from the Pharisees, he responds by pointing out Genesis 1 and 2 language around the way God created marriage, okay? It's important for us to remember why Jesus is even being asked these questions because the point of this is not Jesus stopping and saying, let me teach you all about marriage and divorce and singleness and sex. That's not why Jesus even enters into this really great text that we have in Matthew 19. He, we enter into this text and we gain this teaching because the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and trying to entrap him and make him say something that will either dilute his followers or that he says something so inflammatory that they can take action against him, okay? 
That's the whole point of this. And Jesus is having to navigate this really difficult situation. Because, see, here's what was going on at the time, and Mike alluded to this last week, is that we have two schools of thought going on here. There's two philosophies. There's Shammai's philosophy and Hillel's philosophy. These were old rabbis who basically were trying to interpret the old scriptures and give people of a, how do we apply the biblical principles of the Torah into our current day life? That was the whole idea of what these rabbis were doing. One of them said, well, what I see in scripture is that you can get divorced for any reason. Any reason. So you as a male can divorce your wife for any reason. If she burns your food, if a different... Uh, female is more attractive, those are grounds for divorce. And you had an, the opposite school of thought that was saying, no, like the only reason that seems to be clear through the teaching of the Torah that one could divorce his wife is through sexual immorality. So you had these two varying degrees of understanding and philosophies and schools of thought as far as how and when someone could get divorced. And so Jesus is specifically addressing that, and the way he addresses it is brilliant and genius. I think so often we miss the genius of Jesus, and it would, we would do well to know that this was a dude going around who was bonkers smart. Amen? Like he knew exactly what he was doing all of the time. He didn't stumble over his thoughts. He knew exactly how to handle this the best way. And the genius of Jesus points to the creation of marriage. And he basically sums up Genesis 1 and 2 in the perspective of what marriage is and the way that God created. And he says, God created it like this. He said that it looks like one male, one female, one flesh, one life. You see that? He answered, have you not read? I love that, because they've definitely read. That's an insult, just so you know. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he repeats it, no longer two, but one flesh. And then he goes in, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when asked, can we divorce our wives for any reason? Jesus never even addresses that question other than saying, no, like, let's, let's, let's define marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh, one life. And he goes through and he gives the creation account of marriage. It makes it very clear that no man is to separate this thing. And that's his way of addressing the, the, the concept of divorce. See, because I think it's important here that we understand that Jesus is, is teaching us that there is a plan A for marriage. There is a plan A, plan one. This is it. This is the goal. The marriage is not separated, and that is how God created it. Because when God creates covenants, his covenants last. And so again, Mike did a really great job teaching through all of that. Let's move straight into my second point here, the concede of divorce. Because where we see that Jesus makes it clear by answering the first question, saying that marriage is actually indissoluble, the Pharisees are going to continue pressing this question, and we're going to see how Jesus responds to the idea of divorce, okay? So verse 7 says this, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we have to ask the question, is divorce permitted for the innocent? So is it lawful, um, acceptable uh, for an innocent spouse in certain situations to seek divorce? And that's why I titled this point, 
the conceit of divorce. I think of this like when Moses is uh, talking to God, when God is ready to destroy all of the Israelites, right? There are times when the Israelites had abandoned God so much and sought to to seek idolatry to such a level that God was ready to just wipe them out. And Moses is there saying, God, no, like, just please, God. Like, and he's, he's, he's begging God to, to concede, to not destroy them, and God goes, and God relents. Again, a point in Scripture where we have to hold tension because it's like this moment where it feels like God is changing his mind in a sense, right? But I think that something similar it can kind of be helped us to understand what's going on here is that because of the reality of hardness of heart, because of the reality that sin exists and persists in a broken and fallen world, divorce is a part of that reality and will exist, okay? And so I want to I first start addressing that whole, like, your hardness of heart. And I have a quote here for this. Um, so it says, Uh, This is Bruner again. He says, thus the your of Jesus' accusation, because of your hard-heartedness, should be applied to all of Jesus' hearers to themselves, male or female, religious or irreligious. Universal human sinfulness is the reason Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24. According to Jesus, divorce is not God's glad pleasure for, it is God's sad concession to, the human or the sinful human condition. And I just think that that helps all of this so much. And I just want to make this clear. What the Pharisees are referencing by Moses, they're going back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, okay? And in those verses, Moses is outlining how one can possibly seek divorce. And in there, he says specifically, let's just go there, come on. All right, Deuteronomy 24, So let's read this together. It's verses 1 through 4. It says, uh, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, he took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay? That's the law that the, that the Pharisees are addressing here. Okay? That's harsh. It's hard. Like, it's, it's, just, it's pretty intense. One thing I want to look at here is the importance of what Jesus already established in his first statement, that he has made them male and female. Jesus already is making clear that the view that a man can divorce his wife and that that being the full perspective here, Jesus is actually elevating women to an equal standard with men in, this chap- in, this, in, this, in these verses to make the point that this goes both ways, okay? This works both ways. One is not to dehumanize the other, The other is not to dehumanize the first, okay? And so we see this idea of this hardness of heart, and what the Pharisees said is that Moses commanded. Moses does not command. Moses allows, right? Isn't it funny how the Pharisees use the same tactic as their father, the devil? Like Matthew chapter 4, when the devil decides to, you know, tempt Jesus into doing a bunch of things, and the devil almost quotes Scripture perfectly, 
yet just like sprinkles in a little lying, we have to be very cautious Christians to not just believe everything we hear because there's a lot of lies sprinkled into a lot of the language of our day. We have to be very careful to know that God's true word is true and we need to hold fast to it. And when they say that Moses commanded this thing, he did not command this thing. He allowed this thing because of the hardness of heart of man, okay? And so we've got to be careful of that stuff. But what I want to, I want to dig into here and just continuing on is um, that we need to understand that all of Scripture has, has a lot to say about this. Because you have Matthew chapter 19 that we're discussing here today. We can go back to Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He does discuss the idea of divorce. And he says that the only, uh, the only reason that uh, one can get divorced is based on sexual immorality. Now, what foggies up that situation is that Jesus has just taught on what is adultery, and he just taught that any one of us who lusts in our mind has committed adultery in our hearts. So Jesus has already upped the stakes for this idea of adultery, and I think to some level, all of us are adulterers. And yet, then he goes on to teach on divorce, and he says that divorce based on anything other than sexual immorality, it just really shows us the stakes at which, by which we need to understand our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And so, um, as we come to this and we work through this, we need to do so so much with grace and humility to address this thing on, is divorce permitted? And so... Um, the other places I want to point out is um, Mark chapter 10. You get the same situation where Mark has recorded for us the interaction of the Pharisees trying to entrap Jesus here again, and he teaches on it there as well. In that, in that account, sexual immorality is actually left out of that conversation, which is interesting. But other places that we need to understand that we go to is not only Deuteronomy 24, not only Genesis 1 and 2, not only Mark chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 5, um, Paul also addresses this idea of divorce. And I want to go there just so we have all of our ducks in a row, and we've kind of done a little bit of exhaustive work just looking at what does everything say. So if you have 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's go there really quick, and we're going to read the first part of that. Okay, so it says, now concerning the matters with, uh, about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptations to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, this is all one flesh language here. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devout yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay? Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay? So that's Paul's take. And so I want to, I just, I also want to like empathize with Paul a little bit here. Paul has been the key missionary who has been going around and proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, a people who have never lived like the Jewish people who Jesus came to and proclaimed the kingdom to. And so he's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles that do not hold any version of the Torah and their understanding of how to understand marriage and divorce and relationships and all these things. Instead, they went about it the way the world went about it. And in their Greco-Roman worlds, it was wild, okay? And Paul's coming in and saying, whoa, there's a lot of stuff here. We got to navigate this. And so in wisdom, church by church, is trying to navigate all the complexities of all these things. And something that unfortunately seems to be very common in the Roman culture was desertion. So Paul is addressing this idea of being deserted as a wife. And he, he's, giving, he's giving clarity that he permits that wife to be remarried in this text. So all of this to say, like, these are, these are our texts when we're looking at, like, hey, what do we do with this idea of divorce? When is it allowed? When is it not allowed? How is it permitted? What's going on? We have to take all of Scripture into account. And we have to see that when we're addressing these things, we're applying biblical principle into our modern context, and it is sometimes really messy, right? It's hard. It's tricky. Paul's addressing it, and he has, like, a really hard task trying to bring uh, bring a, a biblical understanding of the creation of marriage of one man, one woman, one flesh, one life into a culture that thinks that that's garbage. Thinks that that's like missing out. Thinks that that's not, that's not worth your time. Thinks that that's bogus. And he's bringing that reality into this, trying to say, guys, we've got to hold this thing because it is special. It is valuable. It is a covenant and God loves his covenants. Okay. And that would have been very messy and required the spirit to be at work, would have required uh, wisdom to be at work. And so that's also where we find ourselves because just take our situation for a moment here. We live in a completely different culture than even in Jesus and Paul's times. We here in Western America don't do the whole arranged marriage thing. Could you imagine? <laughs> I just heard it would be great. <laughs> Uh, right? We don't, we don't do that. We don't think of it like, like this is what they would have thought of. They would have thought like, oh, so the bosserts have quite the authority in town. Let's try to hitch up our daughters to their wagon. That was the idea. Like it was like, it was trying to like make the like strongest, most significant family partnerships you could. And so what was attractive about a wife was basically the family and the property behind that person. Isn't that weird? But we don't do that today. Like now, we have to think through and how to apply biblical principle into our modern culture where we just decide like, man, the heart, whatever the heart wants. <laughs> I think that's what we do. What, what do we, I don't even, you know, I've been really trying to rack my brain on this. We're weird. Because in some ways we're like, I mean, I know a situation where it's like, man, I could really get a lot of work done with that person. Right? We could, we could take over the world. We could open an awesome business together. Or some people, it's just like, man, their body is really attractive. I think I'm going to marry her or him or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes it's just physical attractiveness. Some, sometimes it's just like, man, they make me laugh. Um, I, I've gotten an opportunity to be a pastor for many years now, and uh, I've been able to sit down with some young couples over the years, and it's fun, let me tell you, because it's like, it's just, we're crazy. We're, we're just so crazy. All of us are crazy. But that's what I'm trying to say is we have to apply what Scripture says, and understand that it does hold us to something, but man, it is complex and difficult in order for us to apply all things in all situations all the time. Amen? You with me? Um, 
That said, I, I want to put this quote up. I have another quote um, from this section. There are two plans in Scripture. So this is, this is, I think, a good way for us to sum this up. First, foremost, and supremely, Mark 10, Mark 16, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 7, 10 through 11 in the New Testament, and likewise, Genesis 1 and 2 in the Old Testament, teach indissoluble marriage, God's clear, first, and highest will. Right? Yet second, decidedly second, but also present, Matthew 19 and 5, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, and in the New Testament, but also likewise in Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament, they teach that there are grounds for divorce. The surprise is that the biblical God would have two plans in Scripture at all, like a plan A and a plan B. Does God act like that? And apparently, isn't this fickle of God? No, I don't believe so. Perhaps it is faithful. Whether we like it or not, both Genesis's one flesh marriage prescription and Deuteronomy's divorce permission are in the canonical scriptures. This duality must mean something. And that's what we're navigating here today. So one more thing I just want to say in this section. We can say that one set of teaching cancels the other, or we can read both sets as holy scripture. Discerning in the two sets God's perfect will, plan A, and God's permitted will, plan B. So in the big question of is there permitted divorce for the innocent, I would say yes. Yes, but. Right? Because here's the reality as well. A couple other things before we move on. Um, we, we have to accept that how we address things like marriage and divorce as Christians in the church will look a whole lot different than how the world addresses those same things. Because I know that there are certain situations where we can look at that marriage and be like, that is a disaster, and they probably shouldn't be together. I just wonder how much of that is fueled by not actually following Jesus, not actually being a fellow disciple and living their life, because Paul calls us to something amazing. He says, husbands, love your wives like, the, like Christ loved the church and lays his life down for her. I believe if that's really working itself out of marriage, divorce is a long ways away, hopefully, right? Like, that's what we hope. But unfortunately, because of hard-heartedness and it exists, we live in a fallen and broken world, we also know that divorce is a thing. But that we would not hold the same standards of the world, but we would hold the standards of Scripture and know that it's not just so simple as like when I feel like it or I'm just done with this, I'm going to move towards divorce. But that we know that we have standards as followers and there are certain criteria as we move towards divorce. And it seems pretty minute, okay, as far as like how many reasons there might be for divorce. Your personal happiness is not one of those reasons, but man, I pray that through the grace of Jesus and his healing and restorative work that your happiness can exist in your marriage wherever you're at, all right? But I also hold that I know that in some situations, your spouse just can't get there or maybe didn't get there. And for you, I just want to say I'm sorry, you know? Because this is hard. So I just want to go into the question of when is divorce permitted, okay? We've read the scriptures. Um, I, can, I can see three that I think are kind of umbrella in a sense. The first of which that I think seems pretty clear is sexual immorality. Forms of sexual immorality. The word used there is the Greek word pornea. And that word describes a myriad of the idea of objectifying a human being for your own gratification and purposes. That's the idea of the word pornea. That happens all over the place rampantly and is very unfortunate. And we as Christians are called to more. We need to take that very seriously, that that is not how we are to act. As Christians, we look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't look at another human being as an object to bring me gratification. 
We look at our fellow human being as made in the image of God, as a good, pleasing, wonderful fellow human being. And unfortunately, we are ravaged by the reality of sexual immorality. And as Christians, we need wisdom, we need scripture, we need the Holy Spirit to turn the tide and live differently than this world. Okay? And so, we have to accept that at some level, there is, we're all guilty, right? And we need Jesus. We need his forgiveness. We need repentance. We need to turn from those things. And we need to seek him for his healing, restorative grace. And know that that exists and is not far off, but it is so close. But it requires real transformation, real surrender, real desire to follow our king together, okay? Um, I have another quote here. Um, It would not be wise to interpret Matthew 19.9 without emphasizing one more time the gravity with which Jesus fixed sexual infidelity. By destroying God's creation of marriage, sexual infidelity, and adultery destroy a soul. The unrepentant fornicator and adulterer are damned. We play with fire when we make sexual immorality a light matter. It was not light to Jesus, nor will it be treated lightly by Jesus' loyal disciples. Right? Like, that's heavy, and I know that's heavy in our culture. But dang, I want to be a people that take it seriously and seek a level of repentance to see each other as fellow image bearers and not tarnish or trash each other's images for our own gratification. Now, that said, I'm going to pause again here. Sometimes it's taken, like, the presence of sexual immorality is an automatic, you should go get divorced. And again, as Christians, as Christ followers, that is not so. Divorce should be a long winding and twisting and difficult road in most, in all situations. Now, I I can think of some situations that could possibly exist. Again, we got to hold that tension. But even in cases of sexual immorality, we need to want to desire for long-suffering. And there are more options than just automatically separation of the marriage than just divorce. Sometimes we get so dual in this, like we have a duality in our minds with this. We think either I continue on in this abusive, painful, awful relationship and suffer the rest of my life and die to myself, or I get divorced and then I just separate this thing and become an adulterer anyways. Is that the only options for me? And I don't think it is. I think the enemy implants that in our brains that think that's the only options. And it's not. I think in some situations, in certain key moments or different, I mean, again, guys, this has got to be case by case. You know, we have, that's why we got to do this stuff in community. But I've heard of beautiful stories of a wife who is having to deal with a husband who is addicted to much alcohol and therefore became physically abusive. And so she, in order to keep herself and her children safe, separated from him, but did not divorce him. I don't know how long they were apart, but I know that she prayed for him fervently, that the family prayed for him fervently, and eventually he relented, surrendered, accepted the Lord, and was able to come back and be reinstituted into the family. And kids and grandkids from then just always knew grandpa had been there. Yet they didn't know all the pain and the brokenness that existed at some point. But it's like there are stories like that that I know of that I think are amazing. And so I just want to say that divorce is not the only option. I want to say that there is lots of avenues we can take and long-suffering we can work through, but that it is good to seek your own value as a human being, your dignity as a human being, and your children as a priority, and that you work in community on how to be safe in those situations, okay? Um, But I would also say that even sexual immorality or any other other permissions maybe that exist, 
that that would not be the first option. That we'd fight for this covenant thing that is marriage because that is God's plan A. Now I want to go back to Deuteronomy 24 and just remember that Moses said that a husband could give his wife a certificate of divorce for any indecency. Um, just, just, you know, looking at that word, it's, 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 it's alluding back to the idea of sexual immorality is the idea. Um, and so under these two categories, okay, this idea of sexual immorality or any indecency, I want to put an asterisk here and I want to put the word abuse, okay? Because I want to remember the big harm that's happening in any, indecen- any indecency or sexual immorality is the defamation, destruction of the image of God person in whom you were entrusted to care for and lay your life down for. And I believe as one of your pastors that grounds of abuse in some situations can eventually lead to the permission of divorce. And I don't say that lightly. Man, this is hard because scripture does not say it explicitly clear. And I want to say that too. But again, when we're applying these biblical principles and understanding what God teaches in his scripture, we have to hold that too. And I know it can be hard and messy, but I ask your grace in that in a sense that navigating these situations is hard. Unfortunately, a lot of times when there is any form of abuse, it is also happening in sexual morality as well in some form or fashion. Um, And then the last... uh, permission potentially to seek divorce. Uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 where he talks about desertion. Like, imagine coming home and your spouse was just gone. What do you do? And Paul seems to say, that person can remarry. Um, Now, what... um, what I want to work in, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about remarriage in just a minute. I know we're going long, and I appreciate you all, but I I think this is good for us to be able to work through all this. Um, Again, let's live counterculture to the world. Let's not just seek for quick, fast, easy divorce. Let's long suffer with one another and understand that in cases of sexual morality, uh, indecency, um, situations, some situations of abuse or desertion, there definitely will be case-by-case situations where divorce eventually comes to be because of the reality of our hardness of heart. And when you're working with two people, sometimes one person's absolutely willing to seek restoration and one person is not. And unfortunately, we deal with those realities in different situations and we have to navigate those realities with grace and humility and trusting in God's wisdom and the spirit. Um, here's, here's an illustration that I think is helpful. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I, like I said, I've been I've been trying to work through this, and um, and it, it's been it's been a thing. But I, I I was speaking to my friend and my vet this week, <laughs> and she sent me an email, and I really love what she had to say. So I asked her permission, and she said I could share this this illustration with you all, and I think this is good. Okay. She said this. She said. I could think of this like surgical-related antibiotic use. Isn't that great? And just, just for context, my dog Zuko, um, my beautiful white golden retriever, he got neutered a few months ago. So, okay. In a standard dog neuter, I do not send antibiotics home with the patient. I instruct the owner to keep the dog in a clean and dry environment and to keep the cone on for about two weeks. If the owner does everything as instructed, the patient is unlikely to get a surgical site infection. If the owner lets the dog swim in the canal or lick constantly at the surgical site, it will get infected. Then I will need to send home antibiotics. Antibiotics will fix the current infection, but the tissue will start to linger or will still take longer to heal. It will be uncomfortable and the patient, i.e. the dog, will have to wear a cone even longer. And can I just say with cones, cones are stupid. (laughs) 
My dog has no physical boundaries, no awareness of where his body begins and ends. And so I just want to say, while we were dealing with those two weeks of having a cone on my dog's head, my son Griffin almost died. <laughs> and Rochelle and I were walking around like we had like gashes on our, on our, on our calves. It was insane. They're stupid. Okay. Also, I also run the risk of inducing an allergic reaction to the drug, of setting the gastrointestinal tract, i.e. diarrhea and vomiting, and or creating antibiotic resistance and lifelong problems treating any future infections the dog may have. Antibiotics cure the problem but have side effects, and the problem would ideally have been avoided. Okay? I just... I, I, I just appreciated that email so much because <laughs> it really is like this, like, I mean, I think it kind of lightens this for us, but it just helps us see, like, man, God's plan A is what we all should be teaching ourselves, teaching our children, instructing each other as disciples in Christ. Yes, this is good. Marriage is a covenant that's to last and to never be separated, but sin, right? And then we understand that, and then when our brothers and sisters are going through the painful realities of this re, like hard-heartedness lived out and having to deal with this practically, the church is not to shame or to look down on our brothers and sisters going through that. And we can't even understand the pain of that separation taking place. We are to come alongside in love and gentleness and humility and grace and carry the pain of these things with one another. You with me? It is a reality, and we need to accept it as a reality. But we also can hold God's good plan A in hand as we process through it, okay? Two more things, and then we're going to land this plane, okay? Um, remarriage. So uh, Jesus does talk about, it's kind of interesting. He actually says uh, in his text that uh, anyone who uh, commits commits sexual immorality, and then remarries, commits adultery. So Jesus makes a point about this idea of remarriage, and that would have been a big deal. Because think about remarriage for a moment. Remarriage is the idea that, like, I was one flesh with somebody. I've been divided now, and now I'm going to go one flesh with someone else. The math doesn't quite work out, okay? So we need to understand that remarriage is, is a big topic that we need to discuss, because unfortunately our culture says hey, if that one didn't work out, don't worry about it. You can go try it again over here, right? If that one didn't work out, it's okay. We can try it again. So what we need to do is I'm not saying that, that remarriage is, is, is not permitted, but what I'm saying is we just need to take that concept seriously. We also need to make sure that we understand that remarriage is not a good motivation for divorce, okay? Marriage is not a good, or divorce, uh, remarriage is not a good motivation for divorce. So is it okay to remarry? It seems like throughout Scripture that if there is an innocent party amongst the two spouses, it seems pretty clear that remarriage is acceptable, sometimes encouraged. Now, we have to remember, we live in a completely different time now. Back then, a destitute wife who had been left by her husband had little future to look forward to, unfortunately. Thankfully now our very wise, strong, confident women in the room can hold amazing jobs, make all of the monies, and hopefully as salary things start to work out better, they can make as much as men can someday. It'd be really awesome, right? So potentially women can today have a life being a single person for the rest of their life, but that's still, we still have to come to Scripture and understand that Jesus seems to, to want us to take the concept of remarriage very seriously, Okay? So, um, for the innocent, it seems very clear. Now, I want to say, for the guilty, is remarriage on the table? Right? That's, that's tricky. That's so tricky. If the sexually immoral spouse eventually goes through the process of divorce and is a divorced person, but yet they would be maybe considered by their community and themselves and their, their, their ex-spouse the perpetrator in the marriage, is it? permitted for them to get divorced? Or sorry, is it permitted for them to get remarried? Excuse me. And scripture seems to point out and say, as Jesus's words say, they too then commit adultery. Um, this is where it gets weird. This one's rough, okay? 
Because the reality of the gospel, I think, absolutely makes that possible. But dang, we have to hold that thing so tightly and be very careful with it. Because again, back to my very first quote, where like we can, we can just proclaim the gospel so much that people just can feel free to do whatever they want because grace is going to cover it. That is not how we live as Christians. We live according to obedience of our holy God who calls us to something more, okay? And so yes, grace, I think, can abound in that situation, but man, I think that is a long road of true surrender, repentance, seeking the Father, confessing accordingly, being in community through that process, I think that that is a road to take, and it is hard, okay? And I want to say this. Jesus knows the heart, and he's coming back to judge. So for those that have found themselves guilty of that and continue to seek remarriage, I just want to say that warning. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your level of repentance. He knows someday you're going to stand before him and give an account of all things, and that's just going to be a reality, and so we need to accept that as a reality as well. Um, and then the last thing I want to hit before we, we're done here is I just want to talk about our children. Gosh. <laughs> um, this is your family pastor coming out real quick. <laughs> um, one thing I have seen in my perspective of divorce is that Children are the innocent bystanders that take a lot of damage. Mom and dad are going through their thing that's too hard for them, and it's really easy to forget about those little ones that are just having to get drug along. Everyone kind of focuses on mom and dad because they're the hurting ones that are going through this hard thing, and they can express their feelings and their pain and their struggle and so everyone's going to coffee with these people and everyone's going to lunch with these people and everyone's counseling these people. And so often our children are just left just getting shrapnel blast after shrapnel blast from the devastation of the divorce happening. And we forget about them. And Christians, Taproot Church, may we not do so. If our brother or sister is going through the painful realities of a divorce, please let us be a community that just that comes around those kids and cares for the children. I think so often we're going through our stuff, we just, we're just dragging them along. And they're not stupid. I hate, as, as, a, as a pastor that cares deeply about our, our younger kids here, I hate when people assume that our kids don't pick up near as much as they pick up. Man, they know what's going on in the stuff that they watch. They know what's going on in your marriage. They know the painful realities of what you're working through day in and day out. They're not stupid. They're not, they're not, they, they might look like they don't know what's going on, but they know what's going on. Please give your kids more credit. They are going along with it through you, and they deserve to be loved and cherished. A matter of fact, Jesus says this, and I think it is not an accident that right after talking about marriage, divorce, and singleness, that Jesus says this, or says this in Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, listen to this, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For in such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and then went away. I think that is huge. Let's be a people that come together and love our children like Jesus loves our children. Amen? Okay. I am positive I've not covered everything, and I've probably said things that are confusing up here. And I pray that I have not, and I pray that the Holy Spirit's at work here. But, guys, I know this is a tough topic. I know this is hard. Um, this is a big deal. But I just want to remember that God's grace is sufficient. His goodness, his plan of restoration, his healing presence, the work he has done through Jesus and the power of the resurrection is enough in any and all of our situations. But that's one of the beauties of being the church is we get to be messy together. We get to be in unity and hold tension with one another, even in realities where we just go like, man, this is just hard. So what I call us to is that we would be a people that pray fervently with one another, okay? Because we need his wisdom. We need his spirit to work amongst us.
Let's pray expectantly. Let's pray fervently. Let's pray intentionally. Let's pray often because, dang, we need it because this is hard, right? All right, let me pray for us and let's continue praising our King this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day. I praise you and I thank you for the goodness of your grace and the work your son Jesus has performed on that cross and through that open tomb. And the fact that he has ascended now, he's ruling and reigning, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we can trust that he is at work and that his, his work is being accomplished, his will is being accomplished every day to transform this world into a beautiful kingdom. And that there is hope that one day, Lord, you will bring it about in fullness. And we can look forward to that. I praise you, God. I pray for our marriages, Lord. Please, Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. We need your goodness. We need the truth of your scripture. We need to be able to hold the tension and wisdom and by according to your spirit. And then, Lord, just that you would help us in all these things, Lord. I thank you so much for the people of Taproot that we can do hard things together. That you've called us to so much more than just ease and comfort and simplicity, but that you've called us to be kingdom citizens. Just bless us this morning. Keep us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.